when Billy says bulletin, he means hymnal. <laughs> I'm playing around. I don't have any clue what I'm saying often when I'm saying it. <laughs> And I've said before, it is remarkable that uh, I am paid to open my mouth in public. (laughs) Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we uh, look now to your word, I pray that you would give us uh, your help. I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our ears. Uh, Open our hearts to uh, hear, see, and receive your word, to believe it, and uh, to love you more. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. However, before I read this, I want to direct your attention to verse 17, uh, because there is some, uh, I think there's a better translation of this verse. I owe this translation actually to uh, Lee Baird in our discussions. Uh, He convinced me of this and And I am absolutely convinced this is right. Uh, In verse 17 when it says, This is what I mean. The law um, which came... And then in the Greek it says, After the 430 years does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God and so make the promise void. The 430 years is not a space of time from the time when Abraham uh, received God's promise till the... the Israelites were uh, went into slavery or, or were released from slavery. Rather, this 430 years is a synonym for the 400 plus years that Israel was uh, in captivity, in slavery. So it could better be read, read uh, the law which came after the 430 years of slavery does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. And the law was given after they were released from slavery while while they were out uh, in the desert at uh, Mount Sinai. So, uh, please hear the word of God, beginning with verse 15, Galatians chapter 3. To give a human example, brothers... I'm sorry, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came after the 430 years does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. 
I want to tell you about a story. This is absolutely true without embellishment. I want to uh, tell you the story because I'm going to make a remark later in the sermon. And I want you to have this context uh, to hear the remark because I'm going to make a remark uh, closer to the end of the sermon that I think may cause you some uneasiness. But I think with this illustration, this story, uh, then I think you'll have a better context for understanding it. Uh, You know that I went to Uganda. I've been to Uganda twice. And on one of these trips to Uganda, we were out in a small village. And then we walked down paths uh, through uh, banana groves or um, matoki groves, I guess they would call it, uh, down through... Um, about two miles outside of town and we came upon this small group of huts with straw roof and and mud mud walls it was about six of these huts gathered together and the people were outside and they invited us to uh, sit down and talk with them and as we sit down, I look over on the wall of this one of these mud huts. And I, I can't remember if I've told you this story before. But uh, there was a, a large rat, at least this big, from tail to head, hanging from a nail, hanging by its tail by a nail uh, on the side of the, the hut. And in Georgia, we call these, these kinds of rats wolf rats or wolf rats, I guess is the way we pronounced it. And uh, then beside this rat, there was a cat hanging by its tail. And both of these were dead. Presumably, they were going to be skinned and boiled later. And then there was a slab of meat over on this one bench. And presumably they were going to eat this piece of meat, but while they were sitting around, there was a chicken that kept coming and pecking at the meat, and they would run the chicken off. If you think that's strange, it gets better. There was an an old man, and he was sitting in the middle of the group, and he had a lot of twine, and he was uh, weaving the twine together, making a thin rope, and then balling balling it up. And then there was this man... And again, I am not exaggerating. He was sitting there, and he had a tumor or a growth that was sitting on his neck, almost as big as his head. And it and it had hair growing on it, not a face, but it was uh, it was it was really something. And they were all sitting around in this group, and they were passing this hollowed gorge out, gorge out, and it had uh, homemade wine in it. And so they had been sitting around drinking wine all morning. And there was one woman. She was obviously the, the woman of the house, the matron of the house. She was, um, she was outspoken. She was the leader. She was obviously intoxicated. And after exchanging pleasantries, we, we began talking about God. And this woman, she got pretty worked up and wanted to ask me a question. And she got so worked up, again, I don't know if this was cultural or whatever, but and it was, it was the wine more than anything else, I think. But she belched like I've not heard before <laughs> and did not flinch. It was like, no, excuse me or, or anything. Um, 
Yeah, it would have made some of our elementary age boys very proud, <laughs> as I have heard them around the campus. But anyway, uh, she then asked me this question. She said, what makes you think that God would give me salvation? Um, when I am talking to you about God and I am drunk at the very same time. And I said to her, God can save you now, right where you are. I said, you you do not need to sober up first in order to be saved. I told her that we don't get cleaned up to take a bath. Rather, we take a bath to get cleaned up. And that if she wanted to stop drinking, then she needed to receive Jesus first, and he would give her the help to do so. And so, um, again, I am telling you this story because I'm going to make a statement in a few minutes that might make you feel uncomfortable, but this will help give context to the statement that I'm going to make and help you understand what I'm trying to say. You have uh, an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. The first point is God's covenant with Abraham remains to this day. He says in verse 15, to give a human example, Paul's a good preacher, he's using an illustration here, so he's using a human example. Brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Here's Paul's argument, and again, for those who are visiting, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and Paul is arguing against those who believe that circumcision is a prerequisite, or circumcision is necessary in order for you to be saved. He's arguing against them. Uh, He is saying, uh, his larger argument is, Abraham was not circumcised when he was counted righteous. Uh, You read it in the responsive reading, Genesis 15. Abram believed God, and God credited to him uh, his faith as righteousness. And he was not circumcised until chapter 17, so he, he he believed God. He was um, counted as righteous, verse 15. In other words, he was saved in verse 15. He wasn't circumcised until chapter 17 uh, after he was saved. So that's Paul's larger argument. He's continuing with that argument. And he says that, using this human example, that even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So he's saying the covenant that God made with Abraham cannot be annulled. It cannot be superseded. When Moses came and gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, he did not, uh, Moses did not set aside Abraham. The Ten Commandments are not the, sm- the fine print at the bottom of the covenant that change the whole um, the whole meaning of the Abrahamic covenant. Rather, Moses and the covenant God made with Moses and with the Israelites, it rests on the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, the covenant God made with Abraham is a covenant that is received by faith. Abraham was saved by believing God. Uh, Moses and the Ten Commandments, the law, 
was placed on top of it, but it did not annul it, it did not supersede it. Rather, it is built on the foundation of Abraham. What this means is that Moses and the covenant made with Moses is also at its heart a covenant that is received by faith. At its foundation, faith is at, is at its heart. Every successive covenant is built on this foundation. The covenant which preceded Abraham, the covenant that Billy mentioned in the children's sermon, the covenant with Noah, was a covenant of promise that could only be received by faith, could only simply be believed. The covenant with Abraham was one that uh, could only be believed because Moses and all the conditions of Moses rest on that. It is at its heart a covenant that is um, that is received by faith. The covenant uh, with David uh, in Second Samuel seven or first. Oh boy, I want to say Second Samuel. First Samuel, well, first Second Samuel. I don't know how my mind went 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 blank on that one. But the covenant that God made with with David is also one that is received by faith. And so, as you look at the covenants, they you can look at it like God building a building. But the foundation, in terms of our obligation, is simply to believe God's promise. We today live in the new covenant. If you were standing on the street looking at this building, you could see the successive floors of the building. You could see the progress of God's redemption. But if you were uh, in a plane or helicopter or a bird flying over, you would look down and all you would see is the top of the building. The very top floor is the penthouse. It's the new covenant. We live... in, in the New Covenant, but the, the New Covenant is built on the promises, on the foundation of these other covenants. And the way I like to illustrate this is all of these covenants have elevators that go up to the top floor. So the promises made to Abraham are part of the New Covenant. The promises made to Abraham are ours today. Abraham's covenant is relevant for us today. It remains in effect to this day. So, for instance, Paul says in Galatians um, chapter 3, verse 29, the very last uh, verse, And if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise God made to Abraham is ours in Jesus Christ. Just because it was in the Old Testament doesn't mean that it has uh, faded away or no longer remains relevant. I could say an awful lot about this. Um, one thing that one implication is when, when we talk about these covenants being built successfully, we do emphasize, because the Bible emphasizes, the unity of the Scriptures. Yes, there's disunity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God clearly shows us where that disunity is. But there is an inherent unity to the Scriptures. Also, this teaches us about the progressive outworking of God's plan. God had a plan from eternity past. And He is working out His plan of redemption 
And we, as we step back, as we look at God's progressive revelation from the Old Testament into the New Testament, with the culmination of Jesus Christ, with His death, His resurrection, and His ascension, um, we see the unfolding of God's progressive um, revelation. We see His salvation unfold in the Scriptures. And as one of the children said, we know from the Scriptures that although He has paid the full price, He is also coming back for His own. He has promised and He will do it. History is the unfolding of God's plan. And so, if Abraham and the covenant made with Abraham is still in effect today, well, what about the promises connected with that covenant? What about the promises that God unfolded in Genesis 17? This is the covenant God made. This is the part of that covenant where God talks about circumcision. And listen to verse 17. It's printed in your uh, outline in your bulletin. Genesis 17, verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to your offspring after you. God says this is an everlasting covenant. Well, then when did it pass away? Well, an everlasting covenant doesn't pass away. This is one of those promises that is like the elevator that comes up to the top floor. God's promise, Genesis 17, that I will be a God to you and your, your offspring after you, is a promise that continues today. Circumcision was built on the foundation of faith. Circumcision was never intended as a means of salvation. Rather, it was a sign and the seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Circumcision has the same significance as baptism. I have printed in your outline Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. What was happening in Colossians was the same thing that was happening in Galatia. There were people that were saying, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul is arguing with them. And so he writes in, uh, to the Colossian Christians, in him, you were also, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's saying, don't let those people trouble you. If you're a Gentile Christian and you haven't been circumcised, don't let those of the circumcision party trouble you. You have been circumcised, he's telling them. But the circumcision you received was a circumcision without hands. Rather, he uh, he says um, it was a circumcision at the end of verse eleven, which was a circumcision of Christ. Well, what is the circumcision of Christ? Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sin, or trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them uh, in the cross. 
the circumcision that Paul's talking about here was he's talking about their death in Christ. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago in terms of our union with Christ. We died with Christ. God raised us with Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. Our death that he's speaking of, our death in Christ was the death of our old heart. We spoke about this last week. The resurrection he's speaking of is our regeneration in Christ. And so the circumcision was not one done with hands. And he says, and don't worry about the sign of circumcision. You've received that sign. He says in verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism. He links circumcision and baptism here. And so I believe, and we confessionally believe, um, as Presbyterians, that baptism is the New Testament circumcision. Where am I going with this? Remember this little phrase in the first Christian sermon after Peter preached, the people came to him and said, What must we do to be saved? Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, the people were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter uh, said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What promise is he referring to that refers to God, or rather to them and to their children? There's only one promise. That is the promise that God made to Abraham that he would be a God to us and to our children. It's the only place in the Bible that this promise is stated. The promises made to Abraham remain today. Baptism is the New Testament circumcision. Circumcision did not save anyone in the Old Testament. Baptism does not save anyone in the New Testament. But the promise remains, I'll be a God to you and to your children. We baptize infants here in in, uh, the, the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, We believe it is biblical because we believe that the covenant and the promises made to Abraham that he'll be a God to us and to our children remain today. We don't believe baptism saves anyone, but we do believe it is a sign of the promise that God has made to us. To move along quickly into the second point, God's covenant with Abraham comes to us without conditions. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to all springs, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What Paul is telling us here is he is saying, he's... he's, he's Um, helping us to focus on who the party to the Abrahamic covenant really was with. God made the, the covenant with Abraham and to his offspring singular, Jesus Christ. He is talking here in terms of a collective noun. He's talking here in terms of our union with Christ. The promises God made to Abraham 
that included Isaac, that includes all of us, most narrowly was focused in Jesus Christ. I saw this this week, and it was one of the sweetest things I have seen in a long time. God made His covenant with Christ. Everything that I am unable to do in terms of perfectly living before God, in terms of obeying His commandments, it is impossible for any of us to do that. God made His covenant with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled every obligation Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ met the obligations that we could never meet. And so the covenant being made with Jesus means that the covenant and the promises come to us only as a promise to be received. Here's the statement that I've been warning you about. God's offer of salvation comes with no obligation for anyone to be circumcised. God's offer of salvation comes with no obligation uh, for you to be baptized. God's obligation, um, or God's salvation comes with no obligation for you to go to church to be saved. God's offer or promise of salvation comes with no obligation for you to read your Bible to be saved. God's offer of salvation comes to you with no obligation to be obedient, to be saved. What I'm saying is Jesus Christ met completely every obligation that God would lay before us. He met it. And it comes to us as a promise. That's all we can do is believe it. It's making you feel uncomfortable. What I'm teaching, and what Paul's teaching is that you are free from any works. Your your salvation is free from any works to be saved. All the conditions have been met, all the obligations have been met for you in Jesus Christ. You say, well, where's the motive to live for Christ? Where's the, the motive to obey God? I've been talking about justification. That's something God does for you. He declares you righteous. That's something he does for you. There's another half of the story. Sanctification. This is not the bad news. This is just more good news on top of the good news. When God does something, when he saves you, he justifies you, declares you righteous, he also takes up residence in your home, in your heart by his spirit. He changes you. You are a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5:17. He takes up residence. He lives in you. He works in you. Think about this. Almighty God lives in you and works in you. His infinite power is at work within your soul. He convicts you of sin. He gives you power to obey. He gives you desires to obey Him. He prepares you for the good works that He's prepared in advance for you to do. If you are living in sin and you belong to Him, He will draw you back to Himself. That's why 1 John chapter 3 says that a Christian cannot continue in sin. 
It's not because they have so much love for God and so much self-discipline that they'll never sin again. No. It's because Almighty God is at work within the Christian. That is the good news. The motive for for obeying God, the motive for following Jesus, is love for Jesus, is faith in Jesus. But this love and this faith is something that God is working in us. So even the obligations that we have as believers to obey God's word, even that, He by His grace is working in us. I want to ask real quickly two final questions. What is the foundation for your relationship with God? What is, the found, what, is, what is your motive for growth in Christ? I'm not asking you to answer it theologically. I think we can all answer that theologically. But I'm asking it functionally. What is the foundation for your relationship with God? If we were really honest with ourselves, we might say... I love God because I'm afraid of going to hell. Or I love God because I'm afraid of Him being angry with me. Or I love God because... Uh, or or, or uh, I have a relationship with Him because I do these good things. That is not the foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ has done it all. And as a believer, Jesus is continuing to work in you. That is your foundation. And He will work obedience in you. You'll never be perfect. But everything that you do for God is Him working in you. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the motive. I've gone a little long. I'm going to dispense with uh, the other few things I was going to say. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I see my task in following Paul's lead to try and be a demolition expert and blow blow up and blow away the um, false foundations, the um, self-centered uh, motives. Father, those foundations, those motives are only foundations built on sand, um, are only uh, houses built of straw. God, help us to know, help us to learn and relearn and relearn every day that our true foundation is in Jesus Christ, in His finished work in our behalf, and in His continuing work by His Spirit in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would encourage the downcast, remind them that Jesus is at work in them, Father, I pray that you would humble the prideful. Remind them that they bring nothing to the table when it comes to their salvation or their growth in Christ. Father, to the unrepentant, I pray that you would remind them that you are Almighty God 
and that if they belong to you, you will not allow them to remain in their sin. And Father, for those who are unfazed, who are not broken by their sin, Father, I pray that You would break them because You are their only hope. They will remain in their sins unless You uh, make the difference. Father, I pray You'd work in our hearts and increase our love for You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.